WUOG 90.5 FM presents Out There, a weekly journey into the world of the occult, conspiracy theory, the paranormal, and other bizarre undercurrents of the human psyche. The views expressed on this program do not reflect those of WUOG 90.5 FM, the University of Georgia, or the Board of Regents. It's Out There with your hosts, Raymond and Joe. Welcome to another episode of Out There. My name is Joe McFall. And I am Raymond Wiley, and we have an exciting show for you this week, as always. As always. So, uh, Joe, yeah. uh, we're here, not in our usual uh, we, locale. We are in our super secret lair, our ultra secret lair. Right. It's it's the it's the inner, it's the, what do they call it, Austin? The, the Sanctum Sanctorum. I was going to let him say that. All we're here with Austin Gandy, our recurring character. Uh, good to be here. Thanks, Austin. Yep, yep. He has, he has to lean way in because we're on an interesting mic setup yeah, tonight. Yeah. So if you hear any creaking of chairs or rustling of things, pay it no heed. Right. This is the beauty of these the, are old funeral home chairs, actually. That's that's yeah. really good. Good to know there, <laughs> Joe. Uh, anyway, so what do we got tonight, Raymond? Well, hopefully we don't have any of the emotions that this chair has soaked up <laughs> over the years from people. Well, what we got tonight? What we have tonight, my friend, is a very interesting show. Now, if you remember back to our um, show back last year, I guess it was our episode called "Battle of the Secret Chiefs." I believe it was. Yeah, where we had our very own Austin Gandy on the show for the first time. We spoke of a of an order of mystical adepts from late 19th century Victorian England. That's kind of redundant, late 19th century Victorian, whatever. From Victorian England called the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. And we told an interesting story about one of its most famous members, the infamous Aleister Crowley. Well, tonight's show is Crowley-centered. It's Crowley-centric, if you will. Austin, you're excited about this, right? I am incredibly jazzed uh, about this show. We, we, we only had a chance to just touch on Aleister Crowley and you know how interesting a historical figure he was, but this is really going to be a chance to, to look at what his work has come to these days. Right, and in lieu of a uh, normal segment from the Invisible College that like Austin usually delivers tonight, he will be sitting in the interview with us with our guest tonight, John Crow, former member of the Magical Lodge known as the OTO, nationwide, worldwide group of magical adepts themselves. <laughs> well, I don't know if adept is quite the right word, but adept hopefuls, we'll say. John Crow is going to be on the show tonight, host of the podcast, The Lima Coast to Coast. If you checked us out in the iTunes directory, you may have found his show as well. If you search the word occult in iTunes, you get us and you get John. So we're happy to have him on the show tonight. And he's going to talk about Aleister Crowley, the OTOs, the Lima, uh, all organizations, philosophies, orders, things like that, that sprung from the works of Aleister Crowley. Joe, you read much about Crowley in your little days? A little bit here and there, yeah. So, but before before we get to the the Crowley talk, the Crowleyanity, as some some refer to it as, uh, we have out there news. Out there news. That's right. And guess who made out there news this week? You did, Raymond. No, you did, Joe. Why did I? <laughs> <laughs> well, you you were uh, you were there. I was there. You you were really there, though. 
I guess this whole 9-11 truth thing has started to get to me a little bit. So I couldn't, I couldn't, of course, pass up the opportunity. Lee Hamilton, former chairman or vice chairman of the 9-11 Commission, came and spoke at UGA this week. And, of, and of course, if, if you know anything about some of the stuff we've talked about on this show before... We had to go. We had to go. We had to go. But we didn't just go. Oh, no. We, we uh, branched out into a new and interesting form of guerrilla activism. Video activism. That's right. Video YouTube right. activism. We brought a little camera. I was a cameraman. Exactly. We so, organized some people. Some have called this a truth squad, I think, is, is, is one label that people have put on it. But it wasn't the, like, blow a whistle, stand up, and rant kind of no, truth squad No, no, no. Not, not like they do to Philip Zelikow, who yeah. was the executive director of the uh, commission. Anyway, this was Lee Hamilton, you know, elderly gentleman. He had served as a congressman for like 30 years or something. So he's been on many commissions. In fact, he was on the Iran-Contra commission. So yeah, yeah. Uh, this guy's got a long history of, uh, you know, well, th- what, what they'll say on the outside is, you know, bipartisan, you know, investigation and all this stuff and compromise and blah, blah, blah. You know what he is? Cover-up artist. Dodger, Dodger of que- yeah. Dodger of questions, as you will see. Um, so we've got know, a little taste of this. Actually, ex- we're gonna we have a video. We're going to post the the full thing on YouTube. But this is just uh, the first question. Actually, was our very own Raymond Wiley. Right. So we're gonna play a clip from this, and then we'll talk about some of the other stuff that went on after this went down. So uh, enjoy our little altercation. Well, encounter, <laughs> encounter with Lee Hamilton on Out There Radio. Mister Hamilton. <laughs> Uh, former Georgia Senator Max Cleland uh, resigned from the 9-11 Commission in its early stages amid allegations that the Commission was turning into a total whitewash. An interview of a, of a, uh, that the Commission was turning into a whitewash. Um, now, in interviews that he has given since that time, he has compared the failures of the 9-11 Commission to those of the Warren Commission. And this is his quote. The Warren Commission blew it. I'm not going to be part of that. I'm not going to be part of looking at information only partially. I'm not going to be a part of just coming to quick conclusions. I'm not going to be part of political pressure to do this or to not do that. Mr. Hamilton, uh, do you feel or how do you feel about the fact that millions of Americans have joined uh, former Senator Cleland in viewing the 9-11 Commission report with suspicion and disbelief? First of all, with regard to the resignation of Senator Clinton, who's been a friend of mine since the 1960s, um, so far as I know, uh, his resignation came about uh, because he wanted to take a job in the Export Import Bank. Uh, we were not being paid anything on the 9-11 Commission, and uh, Max had a good job opportunity presented to him, and he left. And all of a sudden, the commission expressed our regret when he did go. Now, I think the quotes you gave, I don't know that I've heard them all, but I think they reasonably uh, state what Max felt afterwards. And he is certainly entitled to his view. Uh, I would only say that we issued our report now five years ago. The fundamental story we told, I think, is accurate. It has not been discounted in any way, so far as I know. Uh, Now, having said that, uh, we wrote the first draft of history, and uh, there will be some facts come out in the future that we did not get a hold of, and we tried very hard, but we didn't get a hold of everything. So it may very well be that there will be some changes in the way we uh, told the story. But uh, basically, the way we told it in 
had another commission report to sell it out. Now, there is, as the young man suggests, a large number of people in this country who do not accept it. Uh, that certainly is their prerogative. Uh, they raise a lot of questions. I, even today, I get emails on a regular basis asking me questions about why we reached certain conclusions that we did. Uh, you make a lot of judgments in the course of these investigations. And we did our level best to uh, ask ourselves, what is the credible evidence on this particular point? <laughs> there are thousands of points. Uh, and we made those calls. I think we made them reasonably accurate. Some of the uh, conspiracy theories that I have encountered that, for example, airplanes did not crash into the World Towers, that it was rockets or something else, uh, that the United States Air Force were the ones that flew the airplanes into the World Towers, and a lot of other things, I think, that simply are not at all credible, and there is no evidence to support those kinds of theories. Uh, but we will take in the future seriously criticisms of the 9-11 Commission report, and we will weigh the evidence carefully and we'll make our judgments about it. So far, those judgments have stood up pretty well. So I guess that was about what you would have expected him to say in response to a question like that. He finds nothing about the account that the 9-11 Commission put out to be refuted. Nothing! Yeah, check out the video when we post this on YouTube. Check it out because um, we'll put a link to it on our website. Yeah, right? oh, absolutely. And it'll have some more questions from some, some, different, uh, yeah, some we, different of our UGA allies. Right, we got some people to go along with us. And um, there, someone asked about William Rodriguez. Yeah, yeah, one of, one of my dear friends asked about... Uh, William Rodriguez and his testimony, you know, she set it up to where... Don't she, give his answer away, though. Don't give his answer away? Yeah. Okay, yeah. You so just just, just watch it. the video. He dodges it, and he obviously lies to her when she asks about William Rodriguez, and it's pretty obvious. Yeah, He's, yeah. I won't, I won't say what he lies yeah, about. Yeah, check, but, check it out when, when, from the website. But, but it's obvious from looking at him that he knows exactly who she is talking about, and then the statement that comes out of his mouth about William Rodriguez is... <laughs> it, it's just lame. I'll put it to you that way. Right, it's just lame. Right. So, what else? We asked him about torture. How how he felt about you know uh, adding information into government reports that was obtained through torturing people. Mm. <laughs> oh man, I couldn't resist this. This is one of those moments where something just leaps out of you, and I couldn't decide the rest of the day whether or not to kick myself about this. But then I realized that this guy's a lying cover up artist, and he covered up a Rand Contra stuff. I don't mind so much. Anyway, what happened was, is, is my friend asks about torture, and then he comes back and says, well, you know, torture's really bad. I never, I never took much stock in the, uh, in the, in the, you know, evidence that I got presented that came from torture victims, all this stuff. What I wanted to say to him there was, what about Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who's supposedly admitted to all this stuff, and who has obviously been tortured. He's like, admitted to everything. Yeah, he's, oh, I did everything. Right. right. KSM, obviously tortured. He's your number one witness. He's your star guy. And anyway, so he comes back and says, oh, it's regretful. You know, it's, it, he makes his point that he doesn't believe that we should use torture. But the way he made this point, just the wording of it, he he said. I think he said. Um, I think we we can all agree that the United States does not torture. Right, you know, and he's saying it as like you know, can't we all just get along, you know, in that sort of tone of voice. But it just leapt out of me. I said, it, "Well, say what he said again." I think we can all agree that the United States does not torture. And I yell out in the middle of the law school 
uh, lecture series. Lecture series <laughs> that's a hundred years old. If that were the truth, <laughs> right, right. So I get a lot of, shh, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. But uh, you know, I didn't blow any whistles or anything. Mm-hmm. Now, if it had been Michael Bolton. Or whatever his name is, Bolton. John Bolton. John Bolton. <laughs> Michael Bolton. <laughs> but Michael, Michael Bolton would have like I thrown have, stuff. I would at have him. booed Michael Bolton as well. But why, if it, why are you talking about 9/11? You're a singer. <laughs> if, it, if it had been <laughs> if it had been John Bolton or Philip Zelikow or somebody yeah, like that, yeah. or Horowitz, we could have laid the smack down. But I didn't want to go too far with this guy. Anyway, he lied, and it's obvious <laughs> that he did. So what we're going to do is when that goes up on YouTube later this week, we're going to post it in the news section on the front page of OutThereRadio.net, and you will be able to download, comment on, and tell us what you think about our little 9-11 truth squad right, or whatever. Right. But I would suggest, you know, hey, campaign season's coming up here uh, in the fall. The, the presidential candidates are going to be everywhere, and if you want to get, you know, your sort of – uh, fringe message about you know peace or screw the military industrial complex or whatever out then the best way to do it is just to confront these people in public and get it on tape and put it on YouTube so um, yeah yeah that was that that was a lot of fun though yeah that was a good time it was a good time I was kind of nervous of course but, you were you know. of course you were anyway no you weren't man you weren't nervous I was, man. I got to admit it. It didn't show. It didn't well, thank show. you. Thank you. Thank you. Anyway. Let's get to this interview. Let's get this interview with John Cray. This is going to yeah. be exciting stuff from, from Truth Squads to Thelema Coast to Coast here on Out There Radio tonight. So we're going to be right back after a break. We're going to be talking to our special guest, John Crow, about, like I said, Thelema, Alistair Crowley, and the OTO and other magical kind of stuff. So stay tuned. Stay tuned. You're listening to Out There with Raymond and Joe. We'll be right back. All right, welcome back to Out There Radio, everyone. We are joined here in, well, not not the studio today, and sort of across the internet from... We're joined in internet land. In internet land, in podcast <laughs> land, right. actually, by uh, our, our dear guest, Mr. John Crow. How are you doing today, John? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on the show. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks a lot for coming on the show. John, like us, is from here in Georgia, and he's been sort of working with with occultists and sort of been involved with occultism and the esoteric for many years now. And uh, he's got a lot to talk about. He's tonight. a fellow podcaster too. Uh, he is a fellow podcaster. He does a, a show called Thelema Coast to Coast. So that's that's a what about a biweekly show? About twice a month. Um, it used to come out a biweekly with uh, with me getting a little busy lately. It's coming out now about once a month. Well, it's definitely a good show. You guys should check it out. Like we said earlier in the iTunes directory or at uh, his site. And let's go ahead and throw out your site, John. So if people want to be looking at your blog or at some of your archives while they're listening to the show tonight, they can. Sure. The podcast website is at www.salimacoast2coast.com. And the uh, the blog that I have, uh, which I update a lot more than once a month, is uh, salima.nu. Either of those, and if you can get to the blog, you can get to the podcast, and vice versa. Great. So before we get started, you know, push people into the uh, world of uh, Alistair Crowley and the uh, the occult. Tell us a little bit about your background, how you got started, how you first got interested in Thelema and the works and words of Alistair Crowley. Well, um, you know, everybody seems to come to the, the occult in, in very different ways. Everyone has a story, and and mine is kind of a convergence of a, a few different influences. 
The first was that my family was never religious, and so in high school I started looking for some kind of spirituality, and my friends uh, were a variety of uh, Protestant and, and Catholic Christianity, and so I looked into a number of different denominations in Catholicism, and uh, even got involved with a, uh, a local um, Lutheran church and took baptism at 13. Uh, my, on my mother's side, the family was Lutheran, so I really explored um, Christianity from a, that Protestant background, and really none of it ever met my spiritual needs, and so I started looking into uh, more broader terms, uh, mythological things, and went through a phase, uh, like many teenagers do, of uh, atheism or agnosticism and so forth. But I always felt that there was something more there. Um, and then uh, a friend of mine gave me uh, LaVey's Satanic Bible, which I read and uh, thought was a complete joke. But the uh, Enochian section at the end was really kind of piqued my curiosity. Uh, then uh, I lived in New England at the time, so I went to uh, Salem, Massachusetts, and I happened to pick up uh, the Schuler's Advanced Guide to Enochian Magic. Again, I saw that Enochian thing. And then uh, after graduating high school, I moved to Georgia and to go to college. And basically, when I got here, I found that the uh, found the OTO and and uh, you know previously I'd listened to Led Zeppelin and read The Hammer of the Gods and I mentioned Crowley, and then came here and and kind of it all came together. I found the OTO and the local OTO body was doing Enochian work and so <laughs> all these different things of Crowley and Enochian and and uh, spiritual seeking kind of all came together with. Uh, Selena and the OTO in Crowley here in Atlanta, and that was uh, around 91, uh, and so I got involved with that and uh, have been working those systems uh, in and outside the order since then. Excellent, excellent. And sort of as a side note, before before we move on into the Crowley stuff, when he, listeners, when he was mentioning Enochian magic, he's talking about, I guess some, some people like to call it oh. angel magic. It's direct. Right, oh, yeah, yeah, let me, I'm, I'm sorry. No, that's um, cool. Queen Elizabeth's astrologer was a guy named John D. And uh, back then there was a there wasn't the difference that exists today between pure science and um, occult studies or astrology and mysticism things like that. Things were a lot more fluid. And so uh, John D. worked with a another person named Edward Kelly uh, as kind of a mystic scryer or a medium. For him, and they both communicated with what D considered uh, angels uh, from God. D's process was he would start um, the communication by hours and hours of very devout prayer to God and and things of that nature. So he was under the um, impression that all of the entities he was communicating with were uh, angels in the hierarchy under God himself. And so the, it, the system is called Enochian, as from Enoch, he who walked with God. So that's kind of the, the angelic or magical system that I was exposed to early that kind of uh, piqued my interest. And it's interesting because elements of this, especially the um, working of the Enochian keys, which we'll probably get into a little bit later, I think, which Crowley did, and um, also the idea of contacting some extra, extra normal sort of spirits to gain information is also going to come back into this. So it's funny how some of these early magical interests of yours 
ended up being things that Crowley himself experienced. And I, I guess let's just get into that. Who is this Alistair Crowley character that we've heard so much about? Well, I, I guess the uh, the title, the the wickedest man, uh, is the uh, one that people remember the most. But basically, he was he's this guy who who lived in uh, Elizabethan or I'm sorry, Victorian England, and uh, he he was born in the late 1800s to a uh, a middle class family. Um, his parents owned a brewery, Crowley uh, Beer, and uh, he kind of grew up in a very strict uh, religious environment. His his parents were of a Protestant sect called the Plymouth Brethren, and as such, they they had very restrictive practices and, and behaviors. But one of the things they did strongly stress is a uh, a knowledge of the Bible. So one of the uh, first things that Crowley grew up reading was the uh, the King James Bible, and he knew it. Uh, backwards and forwards. So um, at, at one point, uh, he was, a, you know, maybe your average or above average teenager in, in difficulty, especially since he was, uh, you know, spoiled and his parents had money and so forth. So uh, he, he was quite the terror to his mother, and there was also a lot of uh, difficulties in growing up with his father dying and um, his and, and family relations. Not getting too detailed about this, but. Uh, he ended up being a very difficult child, so his his mother at one point uh, called him the Beast, and that was kind of a, a nickname that he kept. Uh, after he left home, he went to uh, school for a while. He went to uh, Cambridge, and he didn't finish his studies there. He He was too distracted by... Um, his other kinds of studies with occultism and so forth. He did start writing and publishing at that point, uh, mostly poetry. And then uh, he got involved with a, uh, a very influential semi-Masonic magical order called the uh, Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. And he, he took a lot of initiation with them and uh, eventually parted ways and, in fact, uh, was, I guess, mostly responsible for the uh, collapse of the order um, and so then he went and he started his own practices, um, married a woman named uh, Rose Kelly. Um, during their honeymoon, he uh, went to Egypt with her. He actually had a very extended honeymoon, and at times Rose was with him. And at one of those times, it was in uh, 1904, they were in uh, Cairo, Egypt, and he did a, uh, an equinox ritual. And uh, during that period, Rose kind of went into a trance and said, you know, the, uh, the, the spirit of Horus or, or so forth is trying to contact you. And so he kind of didn't take this too seriously until at one point they were in the Cairo Museum and she pointed out that's who's trying to contact you. And she uh, indicated Rahul Kuit on the Stelly of Revealing. Crowley looked at it. It had uh, the the inventory number 666 on it. Uh, so he thought, hey, there's something to this. And uh, so then she, you know, through the trance, instructed him to subsequently go through this process of receiving this text that he did on three subsequent days from, um, from noon to 1 p.m. on the uh, 8th, 9th, and 10th of April. And so... Uh, 
through this process, he received uh, the Book of the Law. At the time, he kind of rejected it. He was a Buddhist. Um, you know, after he finished his studies, he went to um, South Asia and uh, studied Buddhism with a, a man named Alan Bennett, who was also in the Golden Dawn, who became a Buddhist monk. Um, but after you know he received the Book of the Law, he kind of struggled with it and eventually accepted it. Um, and founded his AA in 1907, which was kind of his um, polemic equivalent to the Golden Dawn, and eventually became the head of the OTO uh, after Theodore Royce. And uh, from there, you know, he, he kind of was very influential on the whole magical um, Western mysticism and, and occultism, uh, was a prolific writer and, and so forth. So uh, he he's kind of did a whole bunch you know, and this doesn't even go into the fact that he was also a mountain climber and set records there, and a poet, and a chess player, and uh, a number of other things. I mean, he was a very talented and, and multifaceted person. Wasn't he the first person to scale K2? Is that correct? Um, I don't know his his mountain climbing. I know he tried K2. I don't think he finished it. I could be wrong about that. Um, he had set some other records, but... His mountain climbing uh, exploits are, are not something that I've spent a lot of time studying, but uh, he certainly was, was very good. Um, I've even seen articles in uh, mountain climbing and rock climbing magazines simply about him and his rock climbing records and things he achieved, um, especially when he had uh, health problems like asthma and so forth. Uh, and he didn't have a lot of the equipment that they have today. He he did some pretty remarkable things. But uh, I don't know exactly if he was the first to climb K2 or, or something like that. I'm sure he wasn't the first. But I know at one point he did try it. Before we get into sort of the influences he took up when he was in South Asia and a lot of the sort of yogic Buddhist sort of stuff, um, let's talk about some of the elements of... Uh, Western uh, mysticism, the Western esoteric tradition, as we often call it, that were foundational elements for Crowley. What exactly did he pick up and take with him when he left the Golden Dawn? Because this is about as far in the story as we've gotten on this show up until this well, point. One of the funny things, uh, I don't remember exactly where he said it, and I'm kind of pa paraphrasing it, but he's like, uh, you know, in the first initiations of the Golden Dawn, you you go through these complex ceremonies where you make these dire oaths of secrecy, and then at the end they tell you to memorize the Hebrew alphabet. So uh, he he basically learned a, a lot of his um, Kabbalistic and elemental and astrological correspondences. Um, a lot of the things that he put into his uh, book of, of correspondences, 777, he learned um, while in the Golden Dawn. He also learned the, the necessity of hierarchies. He also saw how the uh, student-teacher relationship works and, and the good and bad ways of how, I guess, social environments operate. He, you know, there was a lot of backlash against Crowley's advancement within the Golden Dawn, and, and ultimately that was one of the primary causes of, of the Order's deterioration. So he he saw the the positives and negatives of of group interaction within magical work, and and so ultimately in the end, uh, his two the two orders that he's known for the OTO and the AA. The OTO is known more as a social um, 
initiatory environment where the AA group was, his, uh, theoretically at least, a single lineage of, of teacher to student to teacher to student and so forth, all the way down, where that is the, the social element is removed and it's simply about the attainment of work. I think that's actually one of the most influential aspects uh, of the Golden Dawn is the structure, the basing it on the Kabbalistic tree of life, um, and, and all of that kind of magical correspondences. So you were talking about the student-teacher relationship earlier. Um, in, in our conversations about the Golden Dawn, we came out of it with a mixed, um, a, sort of a mixed interpretation of, of whether S.L. McGregor Mathers turned out to be a good or a bad force in the order. And, and when, the, when the order split, Crowley went with him. Crowley sort of ended up being his number one acolyte. So how did that relationship progress after the Golden Dawn finally fell apart? Did, did Crowley remain loyal to Mathers until Mathers died, or did they, did they end up splitting in the end as well? Um, if I remember correctly, I think they ended up splitting as well. And in fact, there were some uh, little fuzzy on this, but if I remember correctly, there was some kind of court case even. Um, so I, I think in the end, if I remember correctly, Mathers and Crowley ultimately did have a split also. A few minutes ago, you mentioned a Thelemic organization. And uh, what, what, yeah. is, what is Thelema? Um, Thelema is the name of the spiritual system. Uh, some people call it a religion. Some people call it a religious philosophy or both. Um, it depends on how you approach it. It, it, it is the system that, uh, that Crowley received through the reception of Liber All. Uh, which was the book that he received in Cairo in 1904. Uh, that was broken into three chapters, and, and it's, a lot of it is in um, poetic form, and it, it says a, a lot of different um, things that, uh, about spirituality and, and certain hierarchy of values and, and certain ways to approach um, divine and, and magical work and so forth. And, and one of the core tenets is the, the concepts behind true will and the primacy of will above all. And the Greek word for will is thelema. So the word thelema is used within there. Uh, and then derivative words like thelemites. And uh, the, 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 the core phrase that comes out of the book is, do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. So you have that, that concept of the will is the totality of which one operates under. And then the second uh, pendant to that is love is the law, love under will. So within, within the structure of the true will, then the love is the kind of the engine in which one interacts with the world around them. So these two phrases have actually been turned into more than just um, philosophical slogans. In fact, for, for Thelemites and for many people in the OTO, which is an order we're going to talk about in a few minutes, they become, in fact, greeting, uh, things you say at greeting and parting. Uh, yeah, so for instance, your show, John, doesn't it usually begin with you saying, do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law, welcome to Thelema coast to coast, or whatever? Yes, that's correct. Um, what's going on there is uh, sometimes that's even shortened to the, the, the number 93. And, and what's going on is when you greet someone, um, you're saying, you know, like, I'm recognizing the, the, your will and in, in that the interaction between us is, is willful from you and, and recognizing the will from me. And then when we part, you know, love is the law, love under will. So it's this constant reiteration of 
you know, that, that phrase of do what thou wilt, you know, that every interaction, every action should be um, manifesting within the, the true will of the individual, regardless of what it is, even if it's, you know, eating lunch or, or doing some kind of magical ritual or, you know, communicating with the divine somehow. You, you, it should all be within the true will. And then, the, again, the, 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 the joiner of love is the law, love under will, um, you know, kind of, again, reiterating that only, uh, as the Book of the Law says, that love is the only thing that can combine two, two separate sources, you know. So uh, love is, is the way in, in which we reach uh, union with the divine. So those, those words, will, Salima in Greek, have a, a geometric value of 93, and then love, uh, which is agape in, in Greek, has a geometric value of 93. So you'll, you'll see people just, you know, doing shorthand of, hey, 93, meaning kind of will, and then when they say, you know, goodbye, uh, 93s, or, or, you know, 93, as in like love or agape or uh, something like that. John, can you talk about this concept of will or true will, uh, and, and maybe a little uh, fuller terms, perhaps? Well, the, the the word will is is really loaded within the English language. So, what Crowley was trying to do was trying to look at what is it within us that causes us to be or or act in, in certain ways. What are the what is the internal motivation uh, that comes simply from us that is not determined by other internal or external things? And this it, you might call uh, doing your true will or doing the right thing at the right time in the right way um, based on, on the individual and the determination of the individual and not being determined by external forces or, or factors or influences. So Crowley was, was always about, you know, this is an internal thing that's manifesting, and it's not really a thing like a, a, a noun object. It's more of like a, a constant dynamic manifesting aspect of, of the individual, which is kind of supersedes all other things in that, it is it, it is the highest in the in the uh, hierarchy of values. So things like morality and and ethics and things like that actually fall underneath the will. Uh, and this is actually the, a lot of the problems that people have because your will could actually push you to do something that somebody else or even yourself might consider unethical or immoral. Uh, and and that's what a lot of people struggle with. But if if you're doing your true will and and it is you know, the law, uh, everything else is kind of subsumed by the will. And, and that's where a lot of the conflict about will happens. So it's within that kind of context that Crowley's talking about will, but it, it, that is still a very kind of simplistic explanation of it. But I, I, I guess it's a start. I hear you. So we we hear this axiom in a sort in a slightly different form if we study um, neo paganism and Wicca, especially. Mm -hmm. You hear this axiom and and harm none, but do what thou wilt. Now, what's the reaction of a Thelemite to this, which is obviously um, I don't know, lifted is a strong word, but taken from Crowley's writings. Do you feel like that's a watering down of that, or do you think that's just sort of a PC way of saying the same thing? 
Well, it, it, uh, you know, the Wiccan Reed, uh, which is, is what that do with, uh, and it harm none, do what thou wilt, is, is a very different statement than do what thou wilt should be the whole of the law. Uh, already, the will is being um, subsumed by some form of morality or ethics, you know. As long as you're not hurting anybody, as long as you're not doing anything immoral or unethical or, you know, dangerous or, or whatever, then do your will. So all of a sudden the will is demoted within the hierarchy of values, whereas within Thelema, will is, is prime and everything else falls underneath it. So by doing that, you know, kind of, I, I guess, bracketing of the will, you know, as long as it doesn't hurt anyone, uh, it, it makes it a very different statement, and it, and it takes it away from what Crowley's trying to do within Thelema. Which is kind of interesting because we see, you know, Saint Augustine actually saying, "Love and do what thou wilt," and do do what, yeah, do what thou wilt. Basically, um, implying that the central important factor is not hurting, is is not you know avoiding harm to other beings, but instead that if one is acting out of love, in that case, from a more you know dogmatic Christian point of view, if you act out of love and do what you will, you will by necessity do no harm. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, to say, you know, to put the focus on uh, the, the lack of harm is to rob it of a certain amount of philosophical difficulty. Um, mm -hmm. But also it's it's just a I think it's a bit of an easy answer to what is ultimately a very difficult mystical question. You know, the figuring out the identity or lack of identity between love and will. Well, I think also the the and it harm none aspect is, is a maintenance of the status quo. So you have already, you know, these predefined ideas of right and wrong and, and, and ethical conduct that are, are imputed onto people by society from, from birth and then from their families and, and so forth. And so you've already got these preconditioned um, ideas of what not harming people is all about. And so you're, you're already kind of bringing that baggage in and, you know, kind of putting it as a wrapper around the will, whereas Salima is actually looking to challenge those preconceived notions of, of morality and, and your values and things like that to actually get you to examine them, to understand their determining nature and to ultimately eradicate them. Before we move into a full-on description of the OTO and the AA, which we've already mentioned a little bit, um, let's let's bring sort of one more element that makes up Crowley into the mix and explain that. We've talked about the philosophy of the will, of Thelema. We've talked mm -hmm. about the influence of the Golden Dawn and of the Western esoteric tradition. For me, the other key element to Crowley is... Uh, the East and the influence of Hindu and Buddhist practices that are, in a way, for me, especially from talking to you a few nights ago, sort of more well integrated into his system than things that we've talked about on this show in the past, things like theosophy, which we sort of described as, you know, sort of a, I don't want to say a sham, but as sort of plagiaristic in many ways. In your descriptions of Crowley, I found a very genuine interest in him in Eastern mysticism and yoga and meditation, things that end up adding to his to this system that many, so many people practice now. Can you talk about uh, his experiences in the East, what he found there, and what he then brought to the OTO and to the AA? 
uh, from sure. that? Well, uh, as I said earlier, when Crowley left the Golden Dawn, he went to uh, Ceylon, which is uh, now Burma, if I remember correctly. Uh, and Sri Lanka. there, um, earlier in like 1901, um, a man he met in the Golden Dawn named Alan Bennett went to Ceylon and became a, uh, I guess what we would call now a Theravadan Buddhist monk. He became a bhikkhu. And he, he was a, a, a significant influence on Crowley. Um, and so Crowley and, uh, went down to uh, Asia to be with uh, Bennett and to study with Bennett. And it was during this period that Crowley came to define himself as a Buddhist. Now, it's important to understand what kind of Buddhism Crowley found in, in 1900 in, in Burma. Most people's conceptions of Buddhism within the United States, especially, or in Europe, are um, what is called Mahayana Buddhism, the, the greater vehicle, things like Zen, Tibetan Buddhism, uh, Chinese Chan, uh, those kinds of Buddhism. But that's not the kind of Buddhism that he found. He, he found what the Mahayanists call Hinayana, or the, the systems that are closer. There's uh, four philosophical systems, or at least how academics break down uh, the philosophical systems within Buddhism. And the, the most original one is called Vaibhashika. Uh, and that's really close to the phil philosophical ideas that uh, the Buddha taught. And as time went on, there, then, you know, around like 150 uh, CE, um, you know, Nagarjuna developed the Madhyamaka system. And then, you know, a few hundred years later, uh, Vasubandhu Asanga came up with Yogacara. And, and so you have all of these developments of, of additional philosophical systems. But Crowley's original influence was the, the Theravadin Vaibhashika kind of the Abhidharma, uh, Abhidharma system. And that was what really influenced him. So there's, you, you've got this ontology of uh, nothing ultimately exists, but everything conventionally exists. So you, you see, you know, a, a person or a chair or, or something like that. Uh, you know, you have this conception of it, but ultimately there's no chair there if you... You can start breaking the back and the handle and the legs off, and it's no longer a chair. Where did the chair go? It was more of a mental idea. So he develops this ontological idea of this nothing and something that uh, are the core of Buddhism, and, and he brings that into Salima in an essay he published in 1902 called Bereshith, where he takes the Kabbalistic ideas that he got from the Golden Dawn combines it with the Buddhist ideas he got from Theravada Buddhism and says, look, they're, they're saying the same thing. You know, this, this absolute nothing, uh, or sunyata, as the Buddhists call it, is the same thing as the Kabbalistic ein, or nothing. And so you, you have this system of, of um, ontological and, and philosophical study uh, and, and he was very enthusiastic in that. Well, you know, fast forward a little, he receives the Book of the Law, he eventually abandons Buddhism, but through his whole life, he maintained the Buddhist ontological ideas that he called uh, zero equals two, that he, he mapped out in Bereshith. Even his, his most, I guess, beginner book 
is one called Magic Without Tears, where he tried to be as simple as everything. His working title was Alistair Explains Everything. And, and when he goes into it, he still refers back to that 1902 essay saying, you have to go read this. This is where I explain all of this philosophical stuff. So those underlying Buddhist ontological ideas are foundational within Salima. And if you go and read a lot of his commentaries about various aspects of the Book of the Law uh, or other aspects of Salima, he's constantly making reference to this zero equals two equation and all of these aspects of Nuit, which is one of the, uh, the, the goddess of the first chapter, and it's also a, an Egyptian goddess, is like kind of the nothing, or the Ein, or Sunyata, and Hadith, the, the kind of the god of the second chapter of the Book of the Law, is the two, or manifestation, duality, and that they both exist simultaneously and interact with each other, and that they can exist without each other. Did that get a little too technical there? I, I don't think so. I think it was, a, it was okay. a pretty clear synopsis. So you, you just a second ago, spoke of the three chapters of the Book yeah. of the Law. These were, he, he wrote these basically in an hour, in, in some sort of trance-like state, or so he claims, correct? That, that's what he claims, yes. Okay, great. So I've heard many people say that each book of, or each, excuse me, each chapter of the Book of the Law describes a different aeon or period in human history. The, the way it's broken down, and, and this is not really like a scientific breaking down, this is more attuned to like kind of the astrological age of Pisces or age of Aquarius or, you know, how kind of there's no like clean break per se, but uh, the, it's more defined by the ideological motivations of the, the people involved. And so if you look at the three chapters in the progression, uh, the first chapter of Nuit, uh, the sky goddess of, uh, of Egyptian mythology, she represents the totality of, of possibilities, the divine feminine goddess, things of that nature. Lots of people who come to Thelema, uh, are, uh who are interested in goddess worship really, really kind of gravitate to this chapter because it, it, it's got a lot of those uh, very nurturing kind of aspects to it, very motherly. Uh, and, and that's kind of represents the eon of Isis, the, the, uh, the, the fabled matriarchal eon, the one where uh, things were less organized by hierarchies, uh, but more kind of in smaller groups, uh, you know, and theoretically matriarchal, although, uh, you know, there's real no evidence that that ex actually ever existed. But it was still kind of the more localized mentality in that human beings were amazed by this miracle of birth that comes from the mother. They didn't know how the whole process happens, etc. Well, you know, then you progress to the next chapter in the Book of the Law. It's Harit, and it's the Eon of Osiris that is m more ideologically based around the patriarchy. So you have these very... Uh, lineal basis of, of men. Um, it's the within the sexual generation. It's recognized that it's the the male who provides the the uh, element that actually impregnates. So it's the male who controls whether or not a a woman can become pregnant. And so therefore, it's seen that the male is superior, and so that you end up having these 
um, male-dominated hierarchies. And that's where a lot of the religions that we see now, such as um, Hinduism, Judaism, Islam, Christianity, all of these very patriarchal religions um, kind of derive from that eon of, of Osiris. The third chapter uh, is, is supplanting that previous eon. It is the chapter of Rahu or Kuit, which is a form of Horus. And that is a recognition of the necessity of both male and female generatively. So neither one has uh, predominance over the other. But unfortunately, because of the, the, the strength of the patriarchy, the, the son, Rahur Kuit, is, is acting violently to rebel against the, the parent. And so you see there's a lot of violent language within the third chapter. Separation. Right, yeah, it's described as the, what, at the age of the crowned and conquering child or something exactly. like that? Exactly. There's lots of very martial discussion uh, or, or uh, lines in there, you know, like I'm force and fire and vengeance and, you know, and I will smite the people and, and all of these kind of things. And it very aggressively goes after other religions, you know, peck out the eyes of Jesus and flap my wings and, and blind the Mohammed. Or I, I think that's, I'm, I'm paraphrasing him. If I'm getting it wrong, I'm sure people will be upset. But, uh, you know, the, 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 the whole idea is to challenge and, and be transgressive against the established norms and to establish the individual uh, based on the primacy of the individual and that based on the, the lineal patriarchy and the, uh, the position within the patriarchy. And, of course, it never goes away. I mean, there's, there's always a, an existence of of the relationship between the group and the relationship of the individual. It's which one is foreground and which one is background. And so the eon of, of Horus is very much foregrounding the individual, whereas the eon of Osiris was very much um, foregrounding the, the group and the, the supremacy of the, um, of the society and the hierarchy over the individual. So, so you have all of this resistance that's happening. And, and theoretically, to follow the cycle out, there will be another eon after the eon of Horus, which is the eon of Mott, where the connection or the, the bonds to the eon of Osiris have been broken. The individuals have gone through their um, kind of rebellion stage, and they have gotten to a point where now that they can approach things in a more equilibrium. Of course, this is going to take hundreds and hundreds, maybe even thousands of years to get to this point. Now, what's very interesting is if you look at this metaphorically, uh, a lot of this could be defined by how a person approaches sexuality, and that you could have multiple eons going on simultaneously in different parts of the world. So you might still go to Africa where there is a very uh, small tribal thing, but then is a uh, but it's very male oriented. So you, you they still may be in that transition between the eon of Osiris to the eon of uh, I'm sorry the eon of Isis to Osiris, where they're still doing things like female genital mutilation and and all of these things that we would consider quite horrendous. So you know, there, whereas we're kind of going into that fighting the the hierarchy, you see the the um, the decline of all of the mainline churches, the decline of the influence of the Catholic Church, the uh, the conflicts with uh, other religions like um, Islam and Judaism and, and things like that. 
So you're getting all of this backlash against these Osirian religions. And so as things are progressing, people are having more and more difficulties with those hierarchies. And actually, you mentioned neo-paganism. I think that's very much an effort since the 50s to try and get back to previous uh, ideologies before the patriarchy, which is not likely to happen, but I think it's an attempt by a lot of people who recognize the difficulties with the patriarchy who, who want to supersede that. And so uh, a lot of it is actually in response. I've, I've met a lot of uh, people within neo-paganism, especially women, who are responding negatively to some kind of experience of uh, the church, uh, of, of Protestantism, Catholicism, or, or whatnot, but they're looking for something that's more nurturing, something more accepting of them as they are, and not being told how they should be. We had spoke a little bit about, or you had mentioned a little bit about how uh, the group approaches a spiritual understanding, and how the individual um, approaches a sort of spiritual understanding. And it seems like those two ways of looking at at finding this uh, can be described through the two orders that we're going to be talking about tonight, the OTO and the AA. One, the OTO being much more group-oriented, whereas the AA sort of um, is a, sort of a line of individual single practitioners doing their work. Can you describe these two and sort of compare and contrast the, the methods of these two different Crowley-derived orders to us? Well, the first thing that I should note is, one, I'm not a member of the AA. I'm not a member of any group claiming to be the AA or affiliated with the AA. So everything that I state about the AA will be from an outsider perspective and uh, from either my interactions with members in the AA, from modern things that various AA groups have written, or the, the more historical stuff that Crowley has written. So that's the first thing that I want to say. And second, Crowley didn't start the OTO. He inherited it from the founders, uh, and in, I think it was in the 1920s. I could be wrong about that, but sometime around then. And so he drastically changed the program of the OTO, but he didn't create it. So with those two kind of caveats, um, the I think it comes down to what is the the teleological end. What is the point of the order? What is it trying to get the person to do? The AA is looking to make adepts. It's looking to have a systematic progression of advancement through practices to get an individual to have certain initiatory and magical experiences, ultimately, or ideally, ending at the attainment of somatic states of which the individual obtains some kind of uh, union with divine or um, other, uh, there are other ways to say that. I, I don't want to really get into kind of um, uh, the, the holy guardian angel and, and all of that. Uh, I'm sure we will later. But the, that is kind of the whole process that is the goal. So it's, it's looking to make adepts. You know, one of the things that has been noticed about, like, the old, uh, now defunct Tibetan um, government and society, I mean, it was a Buddhist, Buddha-making machine. I mean, that whole society was built to pump out people who were enlightened and Buddhas or Bodhisattvas. 
and, and similarly, the AA is designed to work people up certain practices to get them to levels of adeptship. So that's its end. Now, the OTO is looking to do something different. It is looking to use uh, initiation and ritual to get a person to understand certain aspects of their subconscious mind, you might say, or certain aspects of themselves. The initiations activate particular chakra systems, and through those processes, um, you know, challenge an individual to deal with certain aspects of their personality, certain aspects of the maturation process. All of these things are addressed, but it's not really looking to make an adept. Even when you start getting to the higher levels of the order, they're looking to teach certain uh, mystical secrets, you might say, but it's not looking to kind of make somebody an obsessionist, which is the ultimate goal of the AA system. Now, the ninth degree, which is the, the highest degree somebody can get, there are higher ones, but those are administrative, uh, that has a special sexual magic secret that theoretically the initiations before have prepared an individual to receive and understand in the correct context. So all of the preliminary initiations theoretically are building up an individual to get to the point that when they receive the secret of the ninth degree, they understand the basis in which it's presented and the, the symbolism within it, within the larger context of what the OTO is teaching. I got so you. It, so it, if you look at it, they're, they're looking at two different things, looking at two different goals. Um, so what was already in place with the OTO in the organization before Crowley got there? And, and what, what specific marks did he leave on the group fr- from his... I mean, because I know some of the, I guess some of the tantric aspects already existed before Crowley even joined the order. Is that correct? That's correct. Uh, the structure of the order, first of all, was existing. The uh, founders, Royce and, and Kellner... Uh, came from a Masonic background, and so they transplanted the Masonic structure into the OTO. So instead of having like a 33-degree system like Scottish Rite Masonry or, uh, you know, 90-something in Memphis and Mitzrium and and all of that, they kind of simplified it into a 10-degree system, and and there's a lot of Masonic influence on the degrees, uh, some degrees more than others. Now, the OTO certainly does not claim to make any kinds of masons. Uh, there, but there is a relationship, like the third degree for masonry is called the Master Mason, uh, and, and the, uh, the, the OTO is called a Master Magician. So, there, you know, there, there's kind of these parallels through the system. So this, um, you know, the semi-Masonic or quasi-Masonic structure is a, is a legacy. Also, uh, as you mentioned, uh, Royce and Kellner had these sexual magical secrets that were embodied at the top of the initiatory um, degrees of the 7th, 8th, and ninth, And that was carried over uh, into Crowley's system. But Crowley really, I mean, gutted the whole thing and revamped the whole thing. Uh, there was no Thelemic influence when uh, Royce and Kellner did it. I mean, Thelema imputed... Uh, I mean, Crowley imputed Thelema into the whole system from top to bottom. He rewrote most of the rituals, uh, and he he changed the goal 
from, you know, seeing this uh, sexual magic uh, thing within a, a Christian or Masonic context with the Supreme, uh, you know, the, the Supreme Architect of the Universe and so forth like that, to seeing it within a Thelemic context and and using the the sexual secrets within concepts of the will and manifesting the will as a technique to actually do the will. So, uh, you know, there was a, a, an existing structure, even like a constitution and so forth, but Crowley really did revamp the whole thing. And there's actually a, a group in uh, Switzerland, if I remember correctly, that still works a lot of the Royce uh, degrees that they they consider themselves you know a legitimate OTO descendant back to their original founding but they've rejected the whole Crowley influence and and in fact that whole Crowley aspect is called the MMM uh, which is from the Minerval degree all the way up to the sixth degree and then you know OTO quote proper starts at seventh eighth and ninth so what's OTO stand for and and heck what does AA stand for we didn't we didn't even OTO stands for Ordo Templa Orientis, or the Order of the Eastern Temple. And uh, the, the AA is claimed, you know, at least to the profane, to mean Argentum Astrum, or the Silver Star. Uh, there's supposedly some other meanings to it that are known to initiates within the AA, and I don't know what that is since I'm not in the AA. So, uh, but it is called the Order of the Silver Star. And so, um, you know, that, that's kind of where those those dis- different themes come from. So let's let's get a little deeper into the OTO. You've you've spent ma- you you in the past have spent many years with the order and worked up through many of it. What I guess you got you ended up on the sixth degree, right? Yeah. Okay, so you've correct. worked up through the first six degrees, and of course, we're not asking you to give away any trade secrets here. But um, what did you gain from your experience? What um, what happened to you internally as you went through these initiations? Well, being having been in the order uh, for almost sixteen years, um, one of the things you start to notice is the the patterns of behavior from different people who take the initiation. So, like the lower initiations of Minerva and first degree, you start seeing patterns of of people, you know, kind of. M- Coming more into themselves and, and kind of um, establishing themselves more uh, as, as their own identity instead of their identity coming from, you know, kind of their family and things like that. I've seen uh, the results of that are, are people like loosening the, the ties or the bonds or the control that their family would have over them and kind of becoming a more autonomous person. Moving up the degrees, like uh, the second degree, people start um, really kind of coming into themselves and, and start looking at things very differently. Uh, third degree, fourth degree, those kind of things really cause people to sever very negative relationships. Uh, people often lose their jobs, lose their girlfriends. Second degree, for some reason, has very negative effects on on environments. So people uh, often get evicted if or if they're in unstable environments. Basically, the, the the lack of stability comes to 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 a head. Uh, same thing with relationships. Uh, third degree represents death, just like in masonry. The master mason degree represents death, 
within the symbolic structure of the initiatory system, third degree is death. And so it will cause people to to challenge a lot of their their relationships that are not positive in their lives. Um, divorces come from it, relationships break up, things like that happen. And, you know, I've, I've kind of experienced a lot of this too. I didn't get divorced at third degree. I got divorced at fourth degree. So there's all of these different things that, that happen. And then when you start going to the higher degree, uh, I think things become a little more um, internalized and in the, the changes that happen start, uh, start happening more uh, psychologically and you start seeing things in a very different way. So it, 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 the, the initiations are definitely built to cause certain aspects uh, and challenge certain um, backgrounds and aspects of, of an individual's life and psyche. And depending on where a person's coming from, one thing may manifest more than the other. But it, I have definitely seen patterns through the initiatory system as time has gone on. And a lot of people don't make it through all the initiations. A lot of them get hit roadblocks where something is too challenging at a particular initiation or something is confronting them that they don't want to deal with. And, and they'll leave the OTO and, and leave that issue unresolved. Are you if, you, if you join the OTO or some of these people who are going up to the degrees, are they all, and I'm, I'm sure many people are probably asking this question with me right now, are, are you learning how to do magic? Are you learning how to be a, to be a sort of a quote-unquote magician in a way that you can sort of cast spells and have effects on the environment around you that seem supernatural? Or is it, is it more of an internal thing? Is there any of that sort of low magic that you're learning? Or is that just sort of scoffed at as sort of a, um, a side road, you know, that's sort of not as important? The OTO proper is the initiations itself, so what we talked about, the 10 degrees. There is a, a church or religious aspect that has been incorporated into the OTO called the uh, Ecclesia Gnostica Catholica, or the Gnostic Catholic Church, going back to the original meanings of the Latin. The Ecclesia um, is the meaning an assembly, a group. That word eventually came to mean church, but really in, in the original meaning it was an assembly. Uh, Gnostica, again, coming from the Gnostics, or, or understanding God through personal knowledge and experience. And Catholica, or Catholic, again going back to the original meaning, like world, so you might say it's the Gnostic World Assembly, you could define it that way. But it, it is kind of this religious aspect in which kind of the ideals of the order are represented symbolically in a ritual called the Gnostic Mass. So you have these kind of two pillars of initiation and religious expression that kind of go up the OTO, and there's actually direct parallels between you have to be a certain initiatory degree to to hold a certain position within the Gnostic Catholic Church and so forth. So there is relationships between the two. Those ultimately are what the order is uh, combined with the administrative function. Now, in supplement to that, most of the local bodies do various classes on uh, aspects of magic from everything from evocation, invocation, astrology, Kabbalah, yoga, 
you know, any kind of esoteric interest, there, there is the possibility that that body will teach something of that nature. But it is not a core curriculum. With each, each initiation, you get a recommended practices guide, but it is not something that you have to do. Like, for instance, to go from one particular grade within the AA to the next, you have to be able to show certain competency on certain practices, maybe, say, uh, a, a certain banishing or invocation ritual or, or something like that. You don't have to do that within the OTO. You don't have to show any kind of ritual or magical competency to go from the degrees. Now, that doesn't mean that you're going to be certain officers. I mean, there's the desire that if you're going to be an initiator, that you, you have developed the, the abilities to do magical ritual because initiations are magical ritual unto themselves. So, you know, that is kind of looked at, but it is not a required aspect within the OTO. It is available, but you don't have to do it. And in my opinion, unfortunately, a lot of people don't avail themselves to do it, where it, it would be a much better environment if people actually engaged in doing a lot more of the, the magical work. But the Orteo certainly doesn't require it. Now, on the ma- sort of magical end of it, especially in the sort of divination area, Crowley is um, another thing that he sort of came up with or reworked was his own tarot deck, the Thoth, the Thoth deck. Does that come into use in the OTO? I know that the tarot deck was was widely used in Golden Dawn style practices. Does it get? Does the Thoth deck get used by the OTO? Crowley's person, the deck he designed. Uh, again, that kind of magical practice um, is very relevant within the AA practices, and Crowley published, you know, a lot of the rituals that the AA has. You know, uh, people practicing the AA rituals and, and yoga and so forth. The things they have to do uh, is very public. Crowley, you know, wasn't hiding any of this stuff. Uh, and that does involve the use of divinatory practices and tarot and things like that. But the uh, again, the OTO doesn't require any of that. It might recommend either you know investigation of divinatory practices. Uh, it might recommend uh, meditation on particular tarot trumps or uh, some other um, tarot aspect. But again, these are all just you know, suggestions or recommendations. It, it, there's no requirement for advancement. That being said, there is a, a test between the third and the fourth degree, um, and the particulars of it are, are communicated to a the third degree before they can advance to fourth, uh, but it is there is a written and a verbal test. And so certain correspondences, I guess you might say, have to be understood and, and learned before one theoretically can advance. Now, under Crowley's time, uh, one had to pass that test or one could not advance. The OTO, uh, over the last uh, 20 years or so, has rescinded that restriction. Um, with regards to, you know, uh, I, I suppose the difference uh, between Crowley's OTO and the OTO we see now, uh, I'm curious ab- about your take on this subject. Um, you've characterized the distinction between the AA and the OTO as being one kind of centered on 
you know, an individual doing the work with a, a personal master, you know, or, a, you know, uh, somebody of higher degree who will kind of, you know, guide his personal development and the OTO as being a group oriented to, you know, provide the initiations that will allow these things to occur. But I'm curious um, what, what you think, at least Crowley's uh, vision for the work of the order um, in the world, what, what he thought that should be, like, what was its mission? In my opinion, I think Crowley was ultimately looking to set up a parallel society uh, based on Thelemic principles and morals. If you look at his publication, which is called The Blue Equinox, uh, published in 1919, it is, uh, he had a magazine called The Equinox that were actually in book format. Uh, in 1919, he published volume three, number one, uh, and it had a blue cover, and that's why it's called The Blue Equinox. Um, in there, he, he lists out a lot of his ideals on the manifestation of what the OTO should be. And if you look at them, the, the core thing that it's trying to do is it's trying to set up contrary um, institutional functions against the status quo. It has its own system of regulations and laws. It has its own judicial system. It has its own system of church. It has its own system of orphanages and um, structures to support uh, individuals who have difficulty. It's got a kind of um, an aspect of lay members supporting uh, administrative members and having a, even like a monastic group, which is called the Hermit Triad. So you, you have this whole kind of um, contrary structure and this is actually not that unknown. If you look at how the Mormons set up their church, they have a, a, a tremendous amount of internal contrary uh, environments. I mean, they have their own system of, of judgment. They have their own rules and regulations. They have their own um, you know, practices that are contrary to the status quo. Uh, everything, you know, from not even consuming caffeine and, and things like that. They're, they impose those restrictions on their practicing members, and so they end up creating a structure or an institution which supersedes in many ways the, the environment they're in. Now, that's not saying that what the Mormon Church is doing is, you know, would be illegal by U.S. laws, but they certainly have set up a different set of morals and values and standards and expectations for their members and their participants and they're very sectarian about it. If you are not with their system, if you, you know, defy their rules, you are excluded and ostracized. I mean, the Amish are very much the same way, and the Mennonites. So this is not that crazy of an idea for a sectarian group to do. Well, <clears throat> it's funny that you should bring that up, because I guess that sort of dev dovetails us into our next discussion is, is that you have, in fact, been on the receiving end of this sort of sectarian stuff in the past few months. You've actually recently split from the OTO or been, I guess, you were expelled. Um, That's correct. Um, can, you, can you tell us, just in your own words, what happened and how that went down? Because it, it sort of shocked me that the most public member of the OTO, well, I, I, would, I would define you as the most public member of the OTO, especially with your podcast, it sort of shocked me that, that the group would expel their, their most public face. You know, what happened? Well, um, I've always 
been a very opinionated person, and I've uh, some people have even described my uh, my opinionatedness as being somewhat of an asshole. But <laughs> nevertheless, I, uh, I I'm definitely not bashful about speaking my mind. And once I got involved in the order and and got into leadership positions, I saw lots of problems, and I still didn't understand things or see things clearly, and I still kind of was. Uh, under a, a particular kind of mentality that kind of stopped me from asking questions. Uh, eventually, I got to the uh, the lover's tribe, which starts with the fifth degree, and uh, that's when I started asking questions, and this was uh, around 1999. I took initiation into the fifth degree, and, and starting in around 2000, 2001, I started asking questions of the leadership internally. And, uh, and, and started, you know, saying, hey, well, what about this? What about that? And, and as time went on, uh, you know, the, I was engaging directly with the Grandmaster Sabazius and trying to find out why, you know, certain things and, and, you know, pointing out a lot of problems and contradictions and, and actually things that the OTO was doing that was actually kind of hurting itself and not, not even being smart in, in, you know, a general kind of business way. And so, uh, you know, as time went on, this, this conflict uh, escalated, and, and it, it got to the point where I saw that there was absolutely no use in addressing these issues directly with the leadership, because any time you brought up something that the leadership within the OTO did not like uh, or disagreed with, there was no engagement or discussion or ability to, you know, work through disagreements, you simply were just cut off of communication. If you said something and challenged the Grandmaster Sabazis, he would just stop talking to you. And so I was like, well, okay, fine. If they don't want to really engage in looking at these things, I started talking about it with people um, and, and on user groups within the OTO and on my private blog. And this was back, you know, around 2003 uh, where I started using LiveJournal because there's a large OTO group on LiveJournal. And you know, there, you can make private posts that only certain people could see, and so I started discussing a lot of these issues. In 2004, I came to the conclusion that, um, you know, the, the, the mentality of the order really was very backwards, that they were not uh, very integrally, that they were not really into the OTO system, that a lot of the ideas they had were, were just crazy. Uh, and, and contrary to the ideals and principles of Kalima. And so I became a lot more vocal. I resigned all of my positions within the OTO. And at the time, I, I was the editor of the national newsletter. I was the representative of uh, the corporation for the state of Georgia. I was uh, working with a, a number of projects for Grand Lodge. I even had my own bank account. I had my own um, you know, visa cards that went directly to Grand Lodge funds because I was doing a lot of book projects and things for them. So I resigned all of that, sent it all back, and said, you know, look, I, I cannot, with a good conscience, continue to support an organization that I think is actually hurting Salima and the future of the OTO, and, and started calling for a lot of reforms. And I started doing it publicly. Uh, at first, there, you know, there was uh, mild attempts to kind of, you know, react to some of these things. But I ultimately saw that the, the problem wasn't 
I saw things one way and, you know, somebody in the leadership thought the other and I had to convince them. The problem was a, a deeper underlying ideological principled issue that uh, in many cases these the people in leadership positions weren't really into Salima. They weren't really into the principles of Salima. And I started, um, you know, discussing this and then started discussing it on a blog publicly, started discussing it on the podcast. And eventually it escalated to the point where um, I was told, you know, to, I was forbidden to, to discuss these things in public anymore. And, and I rejected that, um, any, that kind of uh, edict. And eventually, uh, you know, they threw me out for it. John, can you talk about, because um, it seems like the, the, this idea of will would be at odds with, with dogma. And it's, it sounds to me like what you're talking about within the organization was that there was, I mean, that, that people had started to maybe take the organization perhaps themselves a little too seriously. Well, that, that certainly is possible. The, the O's are pretty serious. Um, the, the O's that you take in the, the man of earth, the lower degrees, uh, are, are restrictive in many ways, but there still is an individual autonomy. When you start going into the higher degrees, uh, much like masonry, the, the O's get a lot more um, particular and, and you might say a lot more restrictive. And so there, there's the necessity for an individual to understand or interpret those O's and also reconcile them with the will. Uh, so the, the OTO has always stated that the individual is the ultimate arbiter of their oath. So, you know, there, there is this interesting dichotomy where the OTO says that an individual is and can interpret their oath, but then if if you're doing something that the OTO leadership doesn't like, they can turn around and say you're breaking your oath, um, kind of contradicting that the individual is an arbiter. But there there are still these these aspects that an individual has to to reconcile with their will and and uh, the OTO system is very cognizant of this. Crowley wrote it in ways that made the individual have to examine how the initiations and the O's and the will interact. I'm trying to explain all this because I can't get too detailed uh, without going into the actual kind of O's themselves and the degrees themselves. No, we understand. But but on that note, though, can you describe as specifically as you can what it is about the OTO that needs to change? or what it is about the OTO that, that you think needs to move in a different direction in order to get back to this, this message that Crowley originally delivered? Well, you, you, I could sit there and, and give you a litany of examples, but I, I guess at its foundation, one, I don't think that the leaders or um, most of the members are actually that interested in Salima and Crowley, uh, that they're actually migrating or moving away from Crowley and Crowley's ideas um, because they're very challenging and they're very transgressive against society and and individuals. And you'll see that a, a lot of his ideas push people to challenge their middle-class notions and to challenge their, their safety net. 
you know, it at, at one point, you know, he, he's talking about with this degree, uh, one of the higher degrees. You know, you abandon all your property to the order. You, you, uh, you know, you have all of these different requirements about property and, and things like that, or uh, particular kinds of conduct. These are very challenging things, or different ideologies that are uh, ultimately at odds against the status quo. So what's happened is a lot of the leadership of the order has rejected these challenges or critiques of modernity and the status quo and actually have tried to recreate Selena to, to mean it like anything to anybody. You know, you can have it mean whatever you want. You don't have to change. You're perfect the way you are. Uh, and and have these these ideas where Salima isn't a challenge, you know. And and it's also there's this very very strong emphasis on on the religious aspect of it. And where Crowley didn't say you know Salima wasn't a religion. In fact, he may he he said in many places you know it's it is very religious. But he also said you know you can call it a religion, but in doing so you really kind of introduce a lot of problems. And you can, you know, well, hold on. I, I think I have the, uh, the quote right here. He says, um, you know, call it a new religion then, if it so please your gracious majesty. But I confess that I fail to see what you will have gained by doing so. And I feel bound to add that you might easily cause a great deal of misunderstanding and work a rather stupid kind of mischief. The word religion does not occur in the book of the law. And so there's this very, very strong emphasis on being kind of making a church and instead of challenging individuals, kind of making a, a, a I guess, a new Protestant-styled uh, church. And they're not even doing a very good job at it at that. So they don't use the aspects that they um, come from their the middle class background of being uh, knowing how to run a business well, knowing how to plan well, knowing how to execute well, gaining property. All of these middle class things that you see large churches doing, or even small churches doing, you can find you know neighborhoods of very poor people pulling together and getting a, a building together and building a church. The OTO can't do that. There's not a single OTO body in the United States, or anywhere in the world that I know of, that actually owns a building. This is a hundred-year-old organization. They don't own a single piece of property. They don't have any goals. They don't know where they're going in the next two, five, ten years. The OTO started talking about creating strategic goals two and a half years ago. They made a committee to do it. They still haven't produced any goals. And these goals are supposed to be for the next five years. So now they've taken two and a half years to come up with goals for five years. At this rate, if let's say in the next year they come out with goals, they'll have to start planning for the next five years' goals before they even get involved in the next, I mean, the, the current five. They, they, they're they not very engaged in doing things professionally. Everything's done haphazardly. The, the bodies are not interested in actually doing the work People don't support the local bodies, and the OTL is scared to even ask their local members to pay dues and make it a requirement. So the local bodies who the OTL says, you know, is where the OTL is at, doesn't even get the support of its local members. 
they are very resistant to having any kind of mandatory dues, even at the lowest amounts of money of like $20 a month. So it's, it's this kind of migration away from taking this seriously and really working the ideas of Aleister Crowley and the OTO system in the world we live today that, that they're running away from. And this has always been my criticism of it. We don't need less Crowley. We need more Crowley. We don't need less Thelema. We need more Thelema. We need more engagements. We need an emphasis on the text. The OTO, who owns the copyrights of Crowley, hasn't put a, OT, uh, a Crowley book out since 2003. That's four years ago. This is the group that has the legacy of this man and is responsible for releasing these books. I inquired with the Grand Master, I mean, the uh, acting OHO, Hymenaeus Beta, on why, and he said, well, we have other priorities. I don't see what those priorities are. Do you think that the, so, mo the I'm sorry, John, do you think the modern OTO would be recognizable to Crowley, should he, you know, magically appear? I honestly think he would be disgusted with them, and probably would fire all of the people who lead it. How, well, how invested, one of the things that interests me is that, um, you know, Crowley came came to the OTO and, as you said, uh, you know, totally changed it from top to bottom. And do you think? But he are, he came to the OTO though with the with the idea of Thelema, and uh, you know, sort of implementing that in some new religious form in some sense, right? Um, do you think that, in some ways, uh, the OTO was in kind of a convenience for him to spread to kind of spread that message, or um, that that maybe he took it over and changed it to suit to suit what he thought a religion should be and maybe a second a second question follow-up to that is um, do you think he foresaw what would happen to the OTO well I definitely think he saw the OTO as a vehicle for the manifestation of polemic ideas in society uh, within his uh, autobiography called confessions and I think chapter 72, he sees the OTO as a replacement for Freemasonry and a vehicle in which it would take the principles and ideas of, of Thelema and, and disseminate them through the society as a whole. And so he actually envisioned a society based on the, the kind of, um, I, I guess, governmental... Uh, structures that he, he built the OTO on. So there's that aspect. I think the AA would have been a separate system still, you know, working to create particular kind of uh, adepts or enlightened people. But I think he definitely saw the OTO as a, a vehicle of the promulgation of the law of Thelema. And so would he have foreseen what happened today? No, I, I don't think so. Um, but you know, to, Crowley did have a serious problem with getting people during his lifetime to be committed to doing the work. Uh, he, he got rid of a lot of students, and he tried working with a lot of people and was very dissatisfied with most of them. So, uh, you know, Crowley certainly was not an, an easy person to get along with and a, a very difficult person to work magically with. But everybody who did work with him said he was amazing. So, uh, you know, on the magical sense, at least. And so, would he have foreseen this? I don't think so. But he also 
did not leave a great legacy of, of an established order to work from. Even his successor, Germer, uh, compounded the issue and, and actually, you know, in the last years of his life, stopped uh, any kind of an OTO initiations happening, did not, um, did not choose a successor. Uh, there was a big gap. There was even, you know, conflicts with other people claiming to be the uh, OHO of the OTO, lawsuits, things like that, um, people expelling each other. I mean, it's, it's almost like, uh, you know, I excommunicate you, you can't, I excommunicate you, that kind of thing going on. And eventually it all resolved, but it, it did not have any kind of clean legacy. And, and even the OTO that exists today is kind of a reconstruction that started with um, Hymenaeus Alpha, Grady Lewis, Mercury. So uh, would he have seen all of that? No, but he also, you know, did not leave a, a great uh, foundation for the OTO to build on. So in some ways, it's not surprising. The, the, the big problem is the people who are in this OTO, the one that, that exists today, that has the copyrights, that is the largest, that tries to work the system, uh, is that they're not very committed to the OTO that Crowley envisioned. They've kind of made this bastardized version that is kind of, they've taken the things that they like of Crowley, which is, you know, the, some of the structure and some of the less transgressive things, and then everything else that they didn't like, uh, they've just said, oh, well, that's, you know, outdated or no longer necessary, or in some cases, you know, well, since we're a, a you know, corporation within the United States, we can't do that. It's illegal. Mm-hmm. Well, we can so, certainly... Uh, I think we can see reasons, you know, given the uh, the amount of backbiting and, and uh, legal troubles, you know, around uh, the time you were describing. Uh, it, it explains to a certain amount the process of incorporation and a lot of the rumors that we hear about changes to the initiations and waivers that people have to sign. And all these changes were built probably to make the OTO more structurally sound in the face of all these difficulties. Um, but but it, it certainly seems to compromise some of these more subversive aspects of the OTO. Certainly. By the OTO incorporating, and, and I must admit, when it incorporated back in uh, 1996, I was very much in support of it doing at the time. In retrospect, though, there is a very significant aspect. When it appealed to the United States government to recognize it as the, uh, the actual OTO, uh, the legal claimant of the, the lawman, the name, and so forth, it, you know, in a magical sense even, you know, subsumed itself under the laws of the government. And it made itself accountable to the government, or in essence, the status quo. So it is hard for it, as an organization, to appeal to the government for legitimacy and then turn around and challenge the government and the society, uh, which, you know, sustains the government in a transgressive way. So it, it certainly built this kind of internal conflict that I don't think that they've really resolved. Uh, you know, Crowley did not envision the creation of, you know, these these corporate entities called, you know, U.S. Grand Lodge or, or Order Templi Orientis Incorporated or anything like that. Uh, you know, he saw it as more of a, a subtle, um, you know, organization that didn't appeal to any kind of governmental recognition, but it was self actualizing self um, authorizing by you know what the members did 
Um, something that I find very alarming about these uh, these recent um, events and the changes that the OTO has gone through. Um, I've been involved with a pagan student group for years now, and I've seen a lot of young you know, young people looking for you know um, a I guess a foothold into you know their spiritual progression or their occult studies, and a lot of them come to an understanding of Thelema not through you know uh, books or you know word of mouth, but through the internet. And a lot of them mm -hmm. are exposed to the blue equinox model or the open letter to those who would wish to join the order, or whatever right. it's called. Um, and I think, you know, once they finally find the OTO, and this is the big PR danger, I think, that the OTO faces with these, you know, the, the expulsion of uh, Del Campo and Alan Greenfield and the closing down of live journal groups and the... Uh, the closing down of OTO message boards because, you know, certain things are being discussed, certain, you know, uh, internally subversive talk goes on. Um, people see that, you know, uh, we've been we've been watching this whole this whole issue evolve. And, you know, we've been talking to friends who are very into, you know, the live journal community and who know, um, you know, uh, who are very invested in figuring out what the OTO is doing today. These are young people who are seeing, you know, the OTO failing to fulfill what they were first exposed to and want to get into an OTO as Crowley paints it. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, the, the, Truman, this is a, an interesting uh, quote from Harry Truman. Once a government is committed to the principle of silencing the voice of opposition, it only has one way to go, and that is down the path of increasing repressive measures until it becomes a source of terror to all its citizens and creates a country where everyone lives in fear. And one of the things that I've been uh, categorizing the OTO as in the last uh, few years is it, it does uh, create a culture of fear. It is uh, an environment where people are afraid to speak out, and, and rightly so, because there are punitive measures against people. I'm a perfect example. You know, I spoke out consistently, coherently, and, and did it to, in a way that was very difficult for the, the order to argue with, and therefore they only had one recourse, and that was to expel me. But they intimidate a lot of other people, and they tried to intimidate me, and I just would not go along with the program. You know, they first threatened the removal of, um, you know, initiations and things like that. You, they didn't do that to me, but they, they do that uh, either uh, explicitly or implicitly to people. Like, if you start criticizing us publicly or even in your local body, you might not get invited to the next degree or you might not be given yet this position within Grand Lodge or within the body or things like that. There's a lot of coercive activity that's happening. Right. Or and you might or you might be suspended in the way Alan Greenfield was, another prominent that, member. That is order. correct. Uh, Greenfield was suspended um, and Del Campo was asked to um, I, I'm not 100% sure to do some turnover, some information, or to to um, do something. I don't know exactly what. Uh, and, and instead of doing that, he resigned. But I mean, this is this goes back a long line of of expulsions or resignations. I mean, there there was a uh, you know a gentleman over in in the UK who was expelled because he's a used book dealer and. And you know, uh, one of his clients wanted to sell an OTO ritual, uh, an OTO initiation ritual, and the OTO said you can't sell that. And he's like, "What are you talking about? This is my business. What are you telling me on how I can, can or cannot do my livelihood?" And 
And they said, no, you can't sell that because that's an OTO ritual. And he's like, you know, this is my job, you know, go away. This is, you know, way out of bounds for you to interfere. I mean, you're not going to go to somebody who works at IBM and say you can or cannot work on this project. So, I mean, it, they, he felt they were being too intrusive, and he was expelled over selling that, that object. So, uh, you know, this is, there, there is a long line of, of this kind of activity that the, the order you know, uses various techniques to get certain things. Now, on the other side, you know, to the order's defense, there are a lot of crazy people that are attracted to the OTO, and there are a lot of crazy people attracted to occultism in general. And so there also has to be mechanisms to filter out these nuts uh, so that they don't go through the, the initiatory degrees and get into positions of authority where then they can, you know, use their their position and their crazy ideas to influence people or, or to actually harm people. I saw a body master once break a woman's arm and, and you know, do drugs on, on premises and things like that. So there has to be, um, you know, punitive action at times. But, you know, I think it's a very different um, kind of situation when one person is, is dealing drugs or doing drugs or endangering other people or uh, doing physical violence, and another person is, is openly criticizing the leadership. Fair enough. And in fact, I've, I've seen more punitive measures on people who are criticizing the leadership than uh, recently than people who are, are doing drugs at OTO events or or having drugs on them and possessing drugs or even being officers and doing drugs. I don't want anybody to think that I'm down on the OTO because I'm not. I'm actually very uh, enthusiastic about the program of the OTO, the initiation, the Gnostic Mass. I'm very enthusiastic about Thelema and the, pr the program that Crowley uh, envisioned for the, the order. Um, the problems that I have are the current leaders of the order and the way that they're manifesting it or not manifesting it. So I, I want to make that distinction. I don't want people to think that I dislike the OTO or hate, you know, earlier Thelema or anything like that. Uh, my problem is with the, the current stewards of the order and not the order itself. And I, I think we're seeing, um, I, I guess, a new generation of people getting interested in the OTO who want to see those very same things. And I think they will be, I think the OTO should take notice that they, through these tactics that could almost be described as fascist, um, they should realize that they are in many ways compromising these people's willingness to get involved with an order which seems to contradict the very things they want to be involved with that order to cause the changes that the order proclaims that it wants to do in the world. Well, I, I don't think we... The, the term fascist gets thrown around a lot, and it, it has a lot of deeper meaning. The OTO system certainly is authoritative, uh, or authoritarian, sorry. Um, and, and Crowley intended it to be authoritarian. So the, the, let's not confuse the, the hierarchical nature of the order, uh, which in general I support, uh, versus the way that, that those power structures are used to silence or repress those who would question or um, challenge the leaders. And, so I, I, right. And who are in at the same time working towards the goals of the order as it is stated. That is correct. Okay, great. So, like it or lump it, the OTO and much of Crowley 
all goes back to this one experience, this sort of Gnostic experience that Crowley had in Egypt back at the turn of the century where he was um, supposedly delivered the Book of the Law um, by a spirit called Iwas, who was supposedly, am I right, a messenger of the Egyptian god Horus? Uh, Yeah. Okay. Now, this sort of brings up an interesting question because... And Crowley talks about this. One of these recordings that I got of Crowley, he's uh, he's doing some ritual, and he talks about the source of life and the source of liberty and all this stuff. And it sort of brings me back around to a question that I, that I want to end our interview with tonight, and, and that is, what is this source of life? And was Crowley, do you believe personally, as a person who's worked the system, who's invested yourself in his philosophy, do you believe that he had an experience where he actually communicated with some sort of higher form. And and um, before you answer that question, I'm going to play a clip here of Colin Wilson. It's from a BBC documentary made, um, I think, back in the 70s about Crowley. It may have been in the 80s. It's um, it's called Alistair Crowley, The Beast of Boleskine. And I, you can probably find it on the Internet still. I'm going to go ahead and play this clip because Colin Wilson, who's a very respected occult historian has a very surprising take on why he believes Crowley's work is so significant and why he got the results that he did. And so I'm going to cut to this clip and then we'll come back and discuss your take on this here in just a second. When I started writing about the occult, I assumed that magic was a lot of nonsense. In fact, John Simmons says so in his book, uh, The Great Beast. He says, you know, there's only one trouble with magic. It doesn't work. Now, the more I studied this, the more I realized this is just not true. It does work. And it works. You know, I'm almost ashamed to say this. It sounds so nutty. But it works because spirits exist and so-called magicians actually make use of spirits. I didn't believe that for years and years, but I finally come to believe it. Now, Crowley knew this from the beginning, and that's what his magic was all about. You know, in other words, it's really what happens at spiritualist seances, in a way. You're getting in touch with some rather nasty entities, the juvenile delinquents of the spirit world, and getting them to do things for you, which is, you know, not very good either for you or for them. Okay, so there's Colin Wilson saying some very, um, very interesting things for such a respected occult scholar that he believes that there are spirits. Do, do you think, John, that when Crowley had his experience with Iwas and the dictation of the Book of the Law, do you believe that he was actually in touch with some sort of spirit? Well, Crowley doesn't um, describe Iwas as a spirit. He describes Iwas initially as some praetor-human entity, and later he identifies Iwas as his holy guardian angel. So he doesn't use the word spirit or, or discarnate being or anything, but that doesn't mean that Crowley didn't believe in, in those beings of some nature. Um, in his Magic Without Tears, he writes, um, My observation of the universe convinces me that there are beings of intelligence and power of a far higher quality than anything we can conceive as human, that they are not necessarily based on the cerebral or nervous structures that we know, and that the one and only chance for mankind to advance as a whole is for individuals to make contact with such beings. Now, going back to Crowley's Holy Guardian Angel uh, experiences. Uh, you know, at, at some point, Crowley talks about the Holy Guardian Angel being um, another person or another being. 
Sometimes he talks about it uh, as part of the self. Sometimes he talks about it as the higher conscious, but then other times he says, no, don't call it your higher self or higher consciousness because that's, you know, you're, you're, it will give you a misconception. So I, I, the first thing I want to do is I want to make a distinction between what I was was um, and versus kind of I, I think what Wilson's talking about. I certainly think that there are... Um, there is something out there that is not uh, human, you might say. There's a lot of uh, efforts for people to say, oh, it's all just psychological aspects when you do certain magical rituals. You're just manifesting externally some psychological aspect. I think there's more to it than that. Whether it's actual beings, you know, like angels or spirits that you get through seances, I don't know exactly. Um, and, and obviously from that quote, Crowley thought there was something there. But I was, was this holy guardian angel, this higher experience uh, that Crowley describes in a lot of different ways. And people really want to nail down what the holy guardian angel is. Is it another spirit that is connected to you? Is it an angel? Um, and I think he resists any of these kind of definitions because any time that you say, it is this, you're kind of cutting yourself off from the actual experience. So anytime you try to say something positive about what the Holy Guardian Angel is, Crowley's kind of pulling out the carpet from underneath you. So I think I was, was this very um, spiritual experience that he had, um, but I don't know if I would call it a, another being. Uh, I just kind of leave it as his Holy Guardian Angel. You know, this description reminds me so much of the way uh, Robert Anton Wilson talks about his uh, his experience in the 70s with supposed communications from some alien spirit in Sirius or something like that. And I think it's very interesting how um, even the person who has this revelatory Gnostic experience uh, they they still come back even though with a with a message t for the world they still come back unsure as a, as to what it is that they've exactly experienced. Mm -hmm. So um, it's it's very interesting. It's very interesting. So John, I guess that's gonna about do it for us tonight. I, I've really been happy with this interview. I, I tell yeah, th you. thanks so much, John, for talking to us tonight. Thank you. I'm I'm really glad you gave me the opportunity to come on the show. It's 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 very different and and kind of fun being on the other side of the microphone. <laughs> I usually I'm doing the interviewing. I hear you. So, well, uh, well, before you go, tell us tell us again about your podcast and uh, how we can find it about your blog and 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 also I mean you're you're in sort of an odd place right now. Where where's John Crow going in the future? <laughs> well, uh, where I am right now is um, I am doing the podcast about once or so a month. Uh, each one is about an hour to two hours long. And then on it, I interview different people talking about uh, various aspects of um, Thelema, Crowley, occultism, magic, things like that. I'll uh, talk to various uh, practitioners within magical communities, within uh, uh, Thelemic groups, or uh, even academics talking about particular ideas or um, people who've published books and things like that. So it's kind of a a grab bag of, of subjects, uh, even interviews and, and lectures and things like that. So uh, that's kind of what's on the podcast, and that can be found at www.thelemacoast2coast.com. 
my blog at Selena.new is more of my um, ideas and, and just ongoing writing about Selena. As I read more, like I'll, I'll read a Crowley book and think about something that I've read from that, or I'll read some other book, um, you know, political science or some theological book or something, and, and I'll see some connections and I'll write about that, or, um, you know, write about what I see in the Selena community. So that's kind of what's on my blog. As for my future, um, I will be leaving, um, the, the tentative plan is I will be leaving uh, Georgia um, after this summer and uh, moving to Amsterdam uh, to go to graduate school. Cool. Um, you lucky duck. What, what field are you going into? Um, it's a program at the University of Amsterdam that is the study of um, esotericism, actually. Ooh. It's a one-year master's degree. Oh, is it, uh, is it the uh, EXESO program, that one of those programs Nicholas Goodrich-Clark has started? Um, I'm not familiar with that. This one is headed by a gentleman named Dr. Wunter Hanegraaff. Um, and so uh, he's very involved with the uh, study of esotericism um, in, in both the United States and in Europe. Um, I think that is a different program that you're talking mm -hmm. about, and that's out of the UK. That's correct. That's yeah. correct. That's, that's what I'm looking to do. Well, great, great. Well, John, it, it has really been, been a pleasure. pleasure having you on it's the show today. And um, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll keep our eyes on the Lima Coast to Coast as we have almost since its, it, 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 since its inception, you guys started, I think, right after we started casting. So uh, I started in April of 2005. I'm, I'm hitting my two-year anniversary this month. Oh, okay, so you're actually a little ahead of us. Yeah, so. October of five for us. So. so, well, it's been a real pleasure. Um, Austin, any final words for Mr. Crow? Uh, it's been a it's been a great pleasure uh, talking to you, and I uh, just want to say, keep up the good work. Yeah, absolutely. Thank, thank you very much for having me on. I've really enjoyed this. Uh, Ninety three, John. <laughs> Ninety three. <laughs> Thanks. That was our guest, John Crow. We yeah. hope you enjoyed that interview. Yeah, occultism. Uh, well. 101, 201, and a little bit of 301 <laughs> yeah, in yeah. that one. So, Austin, give us your take from the Invisible College here. Well, uh, what more can we say? I mean, that was a very good um, investigation of the origins and the history of the OTO and definitely bringing up a lot of the problems it's facing right now as it's moving into, you know, this this bold new, uh, new millennium. And it'll be interesting to see if... It manages to, to really pick up the slack and turn itself into the kind of subversive, uh, world-changing society that I think a lot of people who are into the occult, who are into, you know, uh, causing change in the world uh, in conformity with their will or their their mystical visions or what have you, they, they want to see, you know, uh, a system in place where they can network with other people and really cause change out there. And it'll be interesting to see if the OTO manages to, to come around from the direction it seems to be going and really become that. Will the cats allow themselves to be herded? That's what it all comes down to. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so anyway, um, before we take our leave from you guys tonight, we have a little bit of background information for you. Um, you if you're interested in Crowley, you can get the Book of the Law, which is what we talked about the most tonight. It's a pretty, pretty cheap book. You know, it doesn't cost much. Unfortunately, Crowley put a clause in there. You have to burn the book every time you read it. And the study of it is forbidden. <laughs> on the first reading. On the first reading, yes. Uh, genius. Genius financially <laughs> there. But um, 
And also the study of that book is forbidden, but but by all means study it. Go go right, go and find right. it. And um, what are some other good ones, uh, Austin? That you, I know seven. I've seen seven 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 in your library. The mm-hmm. uh, list long list of cabalistic correspondences in that book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, ultimately uh, more of a, a research tool than than encapsulating many uh, magical or uh, occult ideas, but um, definitely magic in theory and practice is probably you know a great one to look up if you're interested in uh, the far out places that uh, Crowley takes us. Um, what uh, about that big sixty dollar tome? Ooh, uh, Liber ABA or Book Four, however they're packaging it now. That's magic in theory and practice, and a bunch of other books, uh, Vision, The Voice, I think, and uh, a few others. It's 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 hefty and available at uh, most of your major chain bookstores, which pleases me. It's the most impressive tome in my library. So you just slam it down on a coffee table, and it resounds with this authoritative thud. Right. But I must say, Austin, you sh- if you're going to buy one of those big tomes or that big, like, the $40 Golden Dawn book or the, you know, whatever, uh, Secret Teachings of All Ages, whatever big, giant book Ooh, you're going to buy, if you're going to drop... at a bookstore for an occult book. Go to a New Age or occult bookstore and do it. There is no need to give... Sixty more dollars to Amazon or sixty more dollars to Barnes and Noble, or or buy it from an independent bookseller online. Yeah, exactly. Like someone who sells used. ABEbooks.com is great. Exactly. There's there's a bunch of places where you can get them, but really, Joe. Beyond that, I would say support. The esoteric community. The only the only way this subculture seems to get seems to have a money making venture going on at all to support itself and to support its needs is through these occult bookstores. And you can bet your ass that whatever occult bookstore owner or new age bookstore owner lives in your town, he's probably just barely getting by and he could use that help. Support your local local New Age bookstore. Yeah. An excellent point. Uh, just be careful you're not buying secret OTO rituals or you'll get some, <laughs> some poor schmo expelled. Exactly. Well, that's going to do it for us. Man, we're almost over time uh, yeah, tonight, let's, so uh, let's I'm going to have to cut up. some things. If you like our show, go visit our website, outthereradio.net, or send us an email, outthereradio at gmail.com. That's right. You can add us to your MySpace uh myspace.com slash out there radio is our profile by the way that profile is a bad ass um <laughs> also if you want to chat with me you can log on to aol instant messenger my screen name is out there radio i'm on some of the week by all means shoot me a message tell me what awesome stuff you've been reading about and what you want me to talk about on the show and maybe maybe the message will get through certainly there will be a chemtrails episode that we will do before the end of this series i've gotten three or four requests from that in the past couple of uh months so i think it's going to do it for us joe any any final thoughts all right my name is raymond wiley i'm joe mcfall thanks for listening you have been listening to out there a presentation of wuog 90.5 fm in athens georgia For more information or to subscribe to our podcast, visit www.wuog.org slash podcasts or email us at outthereradio at gmail.com. Source of life, source of life, source of liberty, 
Be thou ever constant and mighty within us, force of energy, fire of motion. With diligence let us ever labor with thee, that we may remain in thine abundant joy. Mm-hmm.